this is what I uh, sent Dan after first watching the video. These kinds of videos are especially repulsive since it's part of this genre of middle-aged men who have been taught to be so self-effacing while trying to come off as firm. He even promises to, quote, always be honest to the best of my ability, as if being honest is the only ability he would dare cultivate. It's the typical don't stick your neck out, don't actually stand for anything except a bland PC admonition to be honest, which itself is dishonest, given how the orientation is simply one of fear, not honesty. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 41. I am joined by Ezekiel Yu and Dan Schneider. We're going to be discussing, I guess, bad uh, YouTube art channels or perhaps um, some individually uh, bad YouTube videos when it comes to art criticism, uh, artistic insight. We have uh, just a mix of materials that we're going to get to. And for anyone that is a patron, that is patreon.com slash automachination, we're going to do a, a bonus show, just uh, me and Zeke, actually, we're going to discuss, uh, well, Zeke's uh, emerging talent as a writer. I think he, in the last few months, has uh, sort of uh, went into uh, overdrive on that. So I want to ask him exactly what the before and after process is like, right? Because it's sort of important, I think, to keep that fresh in your mind and to be able to replicate in the future. We're going to also discuss a, a few of these videos that uh, Dan, since he's going to have to go later, uh, won't get to just yet, and and some other topics, maybe some current events. So for the patrons, and that show is going to be honestly as long as this one. So if you want to get double the content, that is patreon.com slash automachination. So I mean, the, the show has been brewing for, for several months. Uh, Dan uh, mentioned that he wanted to do this uh, a little while back. So last few months, I've been going through some of these videos trying to assess maybe what are the best angles to tackle in the way that um, is useful not only for artists, but uh, I assume most people that watch this channel or consume uh, art media in general, they're non-artists, but are just looking for insights, right? For, I don't want to say to like better enjoy art, right? Uh, I think it's more important to think about understanding the arts, which is why when people start sort of just kind of going off in any direction, um, it's it's not really useful, I think, for the majority of people that are that are viewing, right? And maybe we're going to look at some of the comments, right? Some of the responses to see like whether or not people are, are picking up on some of the things that we're going to be mentioning here. Uh, Dan, do you have any introductory comments about uh, maybe why you wanted to choose some of these videos? Well, it's just uh, YouTube. Usually, when I'm writing, whether it's uh, a play or a book or a just organizing my notes for something, you know, I'll usually go onto YouTube and tap something. Maybe I'll watch one of your videos or something I just did with someone else just to, to see how the audio video was. And then once that's done, something comes up, you know, if I do something on, you know, some topic, there's something related. And after three or four permutations, uh, three or four videos, something comes up and usually it's, it's something related to the arts and, uh, I've always just grown tired, though, of listening to a lot of these 
YouTube channels talking about the arts. They generally are, they use cliches in talking about the art, especially on YouTube. They use what I call the YouTube voice where, you know, notice how Leonardo used these brush strokes and captured the blush on her chin. Now, if, and, you know, it, it, it's this artist, not that art is could be enjoyable, that art could be bawdy, art could be vivacious. Everything is, you know, art, art is about this. And it, it's such, it's such bullshit. And most of these channels have really bad takes on things. Um, a couple, so I sent you, I think, seven or eight links initially um, uh, with a couple of them where I had, com had commented, I, I guess it links to my comment and, uh, uh, I got into a few arguments with a, a few people, and then you had a couple of things. I think Zeke might have sent one, and then I sent uh, one a day or two ago. Um, the Steve Shives thing, which isn't really an, he's not really an art site. He he's he's a reviewer of Star Trek and does mostly polemical uh, left wing liberal videos. Um, and so, you know, they talk about their views on art and there's just a lot of bullshit uh, that, uh, you know, is easily debunked. Uh, and so that's that's the genesis. Yeah, I got to be honest. Uh, one of the reasons why it took a while to actually do the show is I really don't want to sit through these videos, yeah. right? I don't want to watch them. I don't want to look at these people's faces. I don't want to hear those little voices. And speaking of like the little uh, uh, voice and intonations, like one of the guys, uh, he ha he does the, that that YouTube voice. But then he, uh, one of the videos that we're going to assess, he actually has like a couple of other YouTubers on and they are actually like in, in the discussion. And his voice yeah. is like totally normal, right? Uh, that that expectation is not there that, anymore that's so. the canvas guy yeah the canvas guy um so anyway it's funny um uh, zeke uh, uh, how'd you feel going through uh some this collection that was sent to you yeah it was a it was a pretty extensive collection i probably like anyone who spent a lot of time on the internet and is interested in the arts and and uh youtube in particular um uh, they've probably come across a lot of these video essay channels. Um, people are probably, we're probably not going to get to them, but people are probably familiar with someone like Nerd Writer or mm. Every Frame of Painting. Like these these uh, channels are, are what sort of like, I might be wrong, but kind of birth that trend on YouTube of the sort of like, you know, the, like the voice you were talking about, Dan, which is like parodied everywhere now. Like every, now, now video essays are such a thing. People are making fun of the video essays with video essays. Um, but in terms can, of the art, they, they can never use too much of like, if they're doing films, yeah. they can only do like 4.5 seconds. Exactly. And then they have, or, or like these Star Trek videos, you see the same thing yeah, after, after it, they, they do maybe like a 90 second thing and it keeps winding and winding for 20, 30 yeah. minutes how along the video. Yeah. Yeah. Or cinema cartography, that, that, that channel. Um, yeah. I mean, just to echo what Dan said, like. There is a lot of emphasis on the sort of, and we'll see with with the Steve Shives video on like subjectivity and the lack of objectivity in art um, and the impossibility of objectivity. And you kind of see that repeated, um, even though that, you know, that changes. And it's not to say that these channels can't have a good point every now and again, but it's usually muddled by that viewpoint. Um, and what usually happens uh, is they start off the first two or three videos they do are pretty good. Yeah. But then then they key into oh this kind of kind of this kind of video with that kind of approach this is what works 
And this is one of the major problems with YouTube overall is it's always because it's always money driven. Yeah. You, they soon fall into these bad habits and these bad habits generally uh, are lazy thinking and just relying on the YouTube voice, the the re, you know, the four and a half second uh, rewind winds of all the, you know, 20 clips, four and a half seconds and over and over. And it, what whatever little bit they might have had is just gone because got to right. feed the, the rhythm, sure. got to get get my, you know, 50,000 views in one day and sure. get to 100,000 yeah. in a week. And, and the last thing I'll say related to that kind of is like YouTube is a social media site, right? You people share videos and a lot of these channels like they they show their face and their name is attached to it. So a lot of it is about not only like like incent like driven by the sort of uh, the, the need to monetize your channel and, and and have have it as their job, but you know like esteem and reputation and and that usually you know uh, compels them to have sort of like these bland middle of the road opinions in which like so as to offend the least amount of people and yeah, like, and it, uh, yeah again, you know, so. especially if you get into like you know uh, uh promote uh, promotions like in video promotions um exactly as yeah. well as like you know like running ads on your own right. channel right there's a lot of stuff that you can't say yeah uh, you always have to present a certain kind of image um but i mean even so like uh some of the kind of like face stuff that we're going to critique i mean like even if you look at this channel uh, i experiment with different things like with having a script where like my face is in there versus right i'm just literally walking outside for an hour and there's no script i'm just talking versus totally abstracted right recently when i did that video on robin d'angelo it's just uh, literally an essay uh over um uh imagery right and it, it's actually genuinely hard like if, if you if you want to put your face in something and you want to also have a script like these people do it's always going to be very kind of synthetic feeling sure. um so probably now, abstracted is the best way and let me just say that there's a couple of uh uh, YouTube channels that do it quite well, and uh, uh, and uh, there are other YouTube channels too that fall into this habit. It's not just art size. As far as falling into the habits, I was just watching. It came up before we were doing this about a half hour before we started. I think I'd mentioned to you, Alex, there's a woman named Cecilia Blumdahl who lives in the Svalbard in Norway, and she does stuff on her her uh, living mm -hmm. in Svalbard. But those after, after the first year or two of her doing that they became very repetitive because it's like, well, how do you go to the, to the bathroom on a, uh, an island in the Arctic or something? And it's like, she, she mistook the popularity of her site, site being about her rather than an exotic location. But I do want to mention two good arts web uh, YouTube channels before we start because they'll get lost if I don't say them. One, I, as a guy I interviewed a month and a half, two months ago, the feral historian, uh, he's yeah, mostly on sci-fi stuff and he does that walk he walks he, he's i think in north dakota and he walks through the woods and he'll bring out a point most of his videos are 20 minutes or under and usually they're 12 or 10 minutes or under and he makes a point he's got a little wry sense of humor he actually reminds me in both looks and and, and personality of don moss the poet uh and then another one i want to do is a channel called jerome weaselberry and it's not a male, it's a female who just took a name because she doesn't want her name known. And she does reviews of movies and books and whatnot. She's just this, you know, uh, nerdy 30-something uh, woman, kind of cute with glasses. And she does little 10 to 20-minute videos talking about a sci-fi movies from the 50, 50s or a book she's read. 
and she's just looking in the camera and she gives her opinion. And, you know, sometimes they're not the best takes, but it, it, it it's actually you can connect with her and she's not doing the constant looping of stuff. She's not doing the, but she has a very high, oftentimes screechy voice. It, you know, it's sort of the female equivalent of mine. It's not the most pleasant thing to li listen to, but there's a, there's a, a, a forthrightness to, to her. She's not doing any formula and she maybe gets four or 5,000 views for her stuff. So she, she's more popular, more popular than Alex's site right now uh, in terms of the average thing. But she's been at that for two or three years. So she's sort of topped out she, she, because she hasn't been, you know, playing to the, the lowest common denominator. I'd also recommend a channel called uh, Auto Machination. I, I hear it's pretty good. <laughs> Auto Machination. Auto Machination, my bad. But wow. it's, it's, I don't know why I keep fine. doing that. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, I shouldn't critique uh, uh, people's uh, uh, pronunciations, um, right? But, but but anyway, so let's let's get into it. Uh, I'll, I'll we'll start, I guess, with this uh, uh, Steve uh, Shives character. So, okay, so this is a uh, Steve Shives, and he's going to be discussing a comment that was left on his uh, YouTube channel and his response to it, and we'll do this uh, meta meta response um, afterwards as well, and. Um, there was a comment left by someone on the most recent one of those for episode one of season two of Strange New Worlds, where they said, you know, I, I prefer uh, your reviews of uh, season one of Strange New Worlds because they were a lot more positive. It's like you allowed yourself to like, to just like the show. Like you weren't being super critical. You just allowed yourself to like the show. And I've been thinking about that for a couple of days since I first saw the comment. And I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to go after the person who left this comment. I don't think it was meant in, in bad faith or bad taste or to try to be argumentative or offensive or anything. Um, thank you. I can't remember who you are right now who left that comment, but thank you for the comment and thank you for your, your thoughts and, and, and your observations. But I just want to make it clear. I First of all, yes, I was extremely positive about Strange New World Season 1. I didn't review those with Jason. I reviewed those more traditionally, uh, where I would watch the episode and then write a review and record like a, you know, a pre-scripted review of it. I was very, very high on Strange New World Season 1. I thought it was fantastic. And, um, you know, I didn't give a bad review to any of the 10 episodes of Season 1, but that's not because I was letting myself enjoy it. It's not because I was approaching it uncritically. When I'm functioning as a critic, when I'm reviewing something, I am always approaching it critically, whether I like it or whether I don't. The reason why I gave very positive reviews. I was trying to say, ask, uh, do you have this at that one and a quarter speed? Because he seems very hyperkinetic, more so than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's playing at one point twenty five x. But but I mean, even so far here, right? So uh, thus far, right? This, this is something that Dan Schneider's often argued, right? When you're discussing the arts. Don't use phrases like like or dislike, uh, since like or dislike is just, you know, it's just expressing uh, nothing more than a personal preference. It's uh, uh, also expressing maybe how you personally might feel about something, right? We're talking about uh, perhaps emotionalism uh, and whatnot. Whereas, uh, you know, approaching something through just an objective discussion of what you see on the screen or the pages before you in uh, in in the book that you're reading, whatever it might be, um, that takes you out of it, right, to to whatever degree. Not that you can, can do it 100% all the way, but still, right, you're going to be able to get over yourself in some way. And so far, I mean, so he's, he's talking about like and dislike, and yet at the same time, uh, by saying things like, you know, I try to approach things uh, critically, this is my job, 
uh, already we, we're not even 100% sure exactly what he's referring to, right? There's this kind of, you know, there's like already like a, a bit of a chaos emerging um, uh, in the discussion. What he, what he tends to do, especially, and also in his political videos, he tends to look at criticism uh, in, in the sociological sense. Um, that is that th there is no evaluation, that criticism is just basically recapitulating uh, what this is about. That it's, you know, if we're talking about, say, uh, uh, poverty in uh, the Louisiana uh, swamps, you know, uh, and persistent over decades, just talking about it is being bringing criticism. But when we're talking about arts, or we're talking about anything that is being presented for evaluation. Uh, you have to move beyond the like and dislike axis because they're totally subjective. And where you have to get to a more objective view, and you can, because no one, for example, and he uses later on, he uses a, a famous bad film and a good film, I forget which ones, but if you we compare Plan 9 from Outer Space with another sci-fi film like 2001, both have numbers in their titles, they're obviously uh, at, at a, 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 a very... Uh, uh, creatively diff divergent. One is one of the greatest films of all times. One is a notoriously bad film, often considered one of the worst, if not the worst film of all time. Uh, and if you say that all, you, it's all, it's all subjective and it's all opinion. Well, no, it isn't because uh, when you look at, when you're making these critical evaluations, Everyone is going to be able to tell you that 2001 is a better film. Yes, you may like Plan 9 from Outer Space more, but that's the difference. Like and dislike. I can talk about, for example, and I've used this example before, uh, I, I'm not particularly fond. Uh, I don't have an emotional like to, to Ingmar Bergman films. But when I look at a film like Persona, that's a film that's arguably as great as 2001 or any of the other great films of all time. My lack of liking for it, I don't dislike it, but my lack of emotional connection to it has nothing to do with, with it, 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 its uh, creative uh, and artistic ability. And that's the thing that he doesn't get. Now, I should say, if you ever looked on his channel, the only things that he does in any creative sense is he he literally does uh, these uh, little skits with stuffed animals, yeah, and and uh, so I just put that out there because it it's 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 really a bizarre kind of thing. But anyway, if you want to get back to this, okay. oh, I, I would say uh, if, if you wanted without evaluation, to me, criticism is just recapitulation. You have mm -hmm. to evaluate things. You can be wrong. You can say, Dan, I'm wrong. Alex, you're wrong. Zeke, you're wrong about this poem, play, uh, Star Trek episode, uh, sculpture, whatever it might be. But to pretend that there isn't any objective way to evaluate things, being right or wrong about them, is, is simply not so. Mm -hmm. And just real quick, um, because he does get more explicit about objectivity and subjectivity later on. Um, and using, I think it's Godfather and Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He, um, I think he, he starts out fine, but I would probably rephrase it as I, you should approach things critically uh, regardless of whether you like something or not, rather than yeah. whether or not you like or dislike it. Just mm -hmm. to, you know, remove that, uh, what Dan calls the like-dislike axis, right? Because mm -hmm. um, that's the correct critical pose, right? If you want to be honest, right? And he talks about honesty here a lot. 
I think the most honest thing you can do is sort of remove yourself as much as you can, because that's impossible to totally remove your your subjective viewpoint from uh, your critical analysis. But but you know, as much as you can, remove this your sort of like your biases, your whims, what you prefer, what you don't prefer personally. So the art can be what's um, what's you know pri- uh, primary. And the thing is, just the title of his video, video, he's put, he, because he doesn't want to engage in any real evaluation. He's he's trying to make criticism at a same uh, rather honestly at a same level with evaluation, yeah. critical right. evaluation, uh, and that that. If, if honesty is the highest form of, of criticism or the highest quality that criticism should have, well, that he's basically saying that I'm different than all of them. But if you think about it, I think Roger Ebert, right or wrong, tried to be honest. I think most art critics tried to be honest. There's yeah. only two critics of film that in my mind I can think of that were trolls, if you will. One is, I Alice, you might remember there when uh, someone once compared me or a few times Armand White Armand White yeah Armand like White the, yeah and the other yeah. one is Pauline Kael yeah. I think yeah. Pauline Kael and Armand White actually uh, were contrarians by nature and so they weren't quote unquote honest uh, in that sense but if 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 I went through whether it's online Rotten Tomatoes critics whether I went to Roger Ebert or Siskel or the people who wrote for the New York Times or this that the Atlantic Monthly I'm going to say that there are probably there's 99.8 percent of critics have always been giving their honest critical reactions to it, whether it's intellectual or emotional. So by by doing this, by saying honesty and I'm an honest guy, he's he's actually, you know, he's doing the King Kong thing, pounding his chest over something that everyone does. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we haven't uh, already responded entirely to the yeah. video before we watched it. But all right, let's just. Ten episodes of Strange New Worlds, and in a few cases, like extremely positive reviews. Like this is one of the best Star Trek episodes in you know twenty or thirty years. Type positive reviews is because that's what I really thought. I was still looking at it critically. I was still examining it and, and sort of interrogating it in my mind and thinking about okay, does this work for me? Does this not work for me? And why? Which is a critic's job. That's what a critic essentially does is you I mean he is correct about the why right yes. uh, why something works why something doesn't and yet despite identifying this he's going to go a completely other direction you experience the thing that you're reviewing you watch the movie or the TV show or listen to the music or read the book or whatever and then you articulate what you think of it what it made you think what it made you feel what your reaction was to it do you think it worked do you think it didn't work why that's what a critic does and that's what I did for season 1 of Strange New Worlds. That's what I do for my Star Trek retro reviews. That's what I do for my movie reviews. That's what I do for everything where I'm reviewing something. And what I tell you in those reviews is honestly what I think about the thing I'm reviewing. I'm not uh, turning up my dislike of it or turning up my like of it. I'm not not, uh, calculating my reaction or what I'm saying in the review because I think people will like it more if I'm more positive or they'll like it more. I'll get more reviews if I'm more negative. I don't and uh, I don't know exactly what comment that he's referring to, but it, it, it seems to me like even if you just take uh, whatever that comment was at face value, you know, you allowed yourself to like something. I mean, they weren't yeah. accusing him necessarily of dishonesty, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it could be as simple as 
you might have just some sort of like, it could be an emotional block. It could be like something else, right? Some other kind of bias where it just, it it honestly prevents you from seeing something that that does not make you dishonest uh, by not responding to it appropriately. It simply means that you're not really equipped to deal with it, right? So even on the basis of like the comedy he's responding to, he's like, he's turning somebody else's comment into a completely like different situation just so he could like go off in that direction. Well, and I think the reason for it, and this this gets gets to uh, one of the problems with with his uh, takes on the arts and and other things is that uh, he he has a long history of back and forth. When he was he used to do atheist videos, and then he basically got into major uh, fights with quote unquote the atheist community. Everything's a fucking community, the atheist community, and he he became persona non grata. I think in amongst the atheists. And then, then there was a, a thing where, uh, like I said, he, he he did political videos, and uh, he he dis he he got into some arguments. Some people, maybe it was the atheist or someone else, because uh, he he's so radically off to the left with his views, especially on things like gender and whatnot, that he got excommunicated from there. And then, bizarrely, uh, I there was a video that came up one time I was watching it. Apparently. He his marriage dissolved and he he left his wife for another woman and some guy did a whole 30 minute video calling him dishonest and whatnot because he's always talking about being honest and being this and being a good left winger. And he left apparently his wife for another woman. So not that that has anything to do with that, but this is probably why he took a very innocent comment uh, on on this video. And he he doesn't want to whoa 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 you know I'm I'm this this is who I am and whatnot so it, it's because of the atheist and his marriage and 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 his, his political views and 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 constantly he because he he was quite popular probably seven or eight years ago he, you know you look and he he probably gets forty or fifty thousand views per per video but he was getting in the hundreds of thousands and then when he had a fallout with all these atheists. He, he he went down to like 5,000 and he's slowly been rebuilding his audience. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's probably uh, better for him, right? In the sense that, I mean, I'm sure the reason why he had a falling out with the atheist community is because, you know, like, like back in the day, uh, uh, the atheist community was along the lines of, okay, I'm Sam Harris. I'm going to tell you all the reasons why uh, Christianity is a cult, why it's evil, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, guys, why don't you join this new cult uh, called uh, the War on Terror? Let's all support this, right? So uh, I'm sure there was like some sort of dynamic that, that, like that. That, that. that and the gender stuff, the, you know, the 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 anti-Islamic thing, I, you know, uh, yeah, he, he like he he actually has done video videos ripping into Sam Harris and whatnot. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not that I'm defending Sam Harris. I think he's an asshole too, but yeah. Don't do that. I've never done that. It is absolutely fatal to a critic who wants to be taken seriously and wants their opinions to be treated with respect to ever, ever do that. And Jason is the same way. Jason and I have co-hosted a movie review podcast for years and years and years now, late seating, where we review movies together. And Jason is the same way. When Jason gives something a positive review, that's because that's what he really thinks. When Jason gives something a negative review, that's because that's what he really thinks. So Jason was more negative on the new episode of Strange New Worlds than I was. I gave it kind of a mixed review. I wasn't super thrilled about it, but I didn't hate it. But Jason was a lot more negative than I was. And that's because that's what he actually thought. We watched the episode and that that was his reaction. And the reaction I shared in the video was my sincere reaction. 
And I mean, it's, it's, it's like all about, it's a 14 minute video or so, but it's all about himself so far, right? He just keeps right. talking about himself, self, self. Honestly, right? that, that's uh, sincerity. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. Well, I, yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if he says it yet, but at some point in the video, he says, I, I rated, I, I haven't watched any of these Star Trek shows, by the way. So I don't know if they're good or bad, but he Stranger says, New Worlds is good. It's probably the best Star Trek since the okay. Star Trek. Very good. Um, Zeke, Zeke, when he, when he says it, let's just, uh, uh, okay. you, yeah, let's just, yeah. Because we already summarized the whole video yeah, already. True. <laughs> I'm not a cheerleader and I'm not a, a professional hater. I'm not going into the episode saying, oh boy, I'm going to find all the negative stuff about this that I can talk about and really blow that up and give it a really nasty negative cutting review, right? And at the same time, I'm not saying, well, I'm going to go in and watch this and find all the positive stuff and just accentuate that and focus on that. And if there's any negative stuff, I'm just not going to mention that because I want to stay positive. I don't do that. Other people do that. That's fine. Other people do the negative stuff. I'm I wish they wouldn't do that because when you really focus on the negative and accentuate that, then I think that creates a much more toxic audience and a toxic environment in which your content lives. And I, I don't care for that. Um, in addition to the uh, you know lack of credibility of the criticism itself, but there, there there are people in the Star Trek fandom. There are people in you know big long-standing fandoms of all kinds that feel like it's their job to be a cheerleader for the content. It's their job to be a cheerleader for the new episodes or the new movies. And all they do is publish reviews where they just focus on the positive and they celebrate it. And if that's what they choose to do, that's fine. And that is also, you know, a worthwhile critique of how so much art criticism, in fact, functions, right? It could be, you know, a, a group with similar political beliefs. It could be a, a group with a very similar aesthetic preoccupations. And, you know, they essentially just uh, uh, do it to showcase, you know, everything that they believe uh, is positive from a very kind of narrow lens. This narrow lens would be, um, you know, let, let, since we're all Star Trek fans, let's just dwell on on the fandom, right? So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with making uh, that kind of critique, but if you make it, you have to then offer up a proper alternative, which is where it falls flat. That's not what I choose to do. I choose to function as a critic. And if I, if I say I like something, if I say I think something is great, that's because that's what I think, because I watched it and that was my honest opinion of it. If I give a review of something and I say this is lousy, that's because that's honestly what I think. And if I give a review that's more in the middle where I say, well, some of this worked and some of this didn't, that's because that's what I actually think. I'm not pitching it toward any particular audience. I'm not aiming for any particular reaction from the audience. Gene Siskel said that uh, the most essential credential of any critic is that people believe that that's what you actually think. And if I don't have that, then- and Siskel was wrong. Criticisms and my reviews are useless. The only real use- Appeal to authority fans. A movie review a TV review, a review of anything. It, well, there's a couple uses, but it's it's completely useless if you don't believe that the critic actually means what they say. Critiques and reviews are useful for people who have not watched the thing or have not bought the album or have not gone to see the movie or have not read the book because they find particular critics whose taste more or less lines up with theirs and they think, is it worth buying a ticket to go see this movie? Well, Steve and I usually agree. Let me see what Steve says about it. Is it worth subscribing to Paramount Plus to watch this new Star Trek show? Well, Steve and I are usually on the same page about stuff in terms of what we like and dislike. So let me see what he says. And if he thinks it's garbage and I'll probably not get it, if he thinks it's great, then maybe I'll check it out. That's one very practical use for a critic, right? You find the ones that mostly agree with you and you follow their advice. You use them as kind of a guide to decide what you watch, to kind of curate the many, many possibilities it's that are out there. Positive, you just one moment, Alex. The, 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 this is, is what a lot of people do. But a lot of people also go to find someone who actually uh, they can trust that uh, uh, not emotionally, but evaluationally. Uh, because, you know, I I don't know, know if I've ever looked at a critic's, you know, review of a film or, or whatnot and said, oh, I'm going to watch that or not. 
if someone, if I read an individual piece, and it could be from Gene Siskel, who maybe I disagree with more than another critic, but the individual work, is he making good points? Uh, is, is he sticking to what's there? If, if all he's doing is saying, well, this filmmaker ha has done three films in a row where his political views got in the way of something, that doesn't necessarily mean that a fourth film that he's doing that, that that's politically based is going to be bad or, uh, or whatnot. You know, the evaluation and uh, the ability to, to, to know that uh, 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 something is good or bad that's what the critic is there to do, to tell you whether you should watch this or not. Not, not you know, if I, for example, say, if, if you're going to say, well, Dan, uh, there was that new Bergman film that came out, assuming this is 1970 or so, uh, and, and you say, well, you know, Dan it doesn't necessarily co connect with him or whatnot, uh, but uh, he, he, he makes good points and you can argue against your own uh, biases, as long as you admit them, that's what you want in a critic. You don't want to just go with a critic that that you agree with uh, ninety eight percent based purely, uh, purely on emotion. And so, right here, he's he's he 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 made a few good points, and he you know there's a schism here. Take for your entertainment, and the other use is that criticism can spark conversation and can. Uh, give you things to think about that can can offer you alternative ways of thinking about uh, a book or a movie or a show or any other piece of art that maybe you didn't think about that can offer you a, a, a view of that piece from another perspective, from another experience, and it can foster thought and conversation. And that can be fun and that can be uh, engaging and that can be enriching in many, many ways. So it's useful for that as well. And just in general, it can just be fun to talk about movies or talk about TV shows and argue about it good naturedly, not viciously, not violently, not hatefully, but, you know, with respect. Critics aren't here to tell us what is good and bad because that's not the way it works. There's no such thing. And, you know, it's odd because uh, he, he started this section of the video by saying, you know, I'll, I'll talk to various people. And if he thinks something is trash, if he thinks something is garbage, right, maybe I'm not going to uh, take a look at it since we have similar tastes. And he goes, you know, and if you call something trash or garbage, that seems to me. Like you're making at the very least something which sounds like an objective assessment, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not that it's a, a garbage uh, to you and yet it's uh, actually like somewhere else. It's a great work of art or, you know, better yet, uh, it's it's garbage to me. It's great to you. And, and yet there's actually this middle ground where it's totally unknowable anyway. Um, he, wants both, he, want, he wants the cake and eat it too. He wants to be able to, to say that I'm honest and I want to... I want to uh, connect with the the reader or the viewer here uh, because of my honesty, but he he uses these words as you pointed out that are about critical evaluation. Uh, so you know he 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 he's trying to use he's trying to, to 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 sort of he may not be doing he's probably not doing this consciously, but he's peppering in these more objective terms, and yet he's still trying to become stay marshmallowy and. Uh, and emotional and uh, and and honest. It's an objectively good movie and an objectively bad movie. If I say that the new Strange New Worlds episode is great and Jason says the new Strange New Worlds episode is lousy, neither one of us is objectively correct or incorrect. It's a matter of taste. It's a matter of opinion. And some people will agree with Jason. Some people will agree with me. Some people will come into the middle and say, well, you both make good points, but there's also stuff about both of your opinions that I disagree with. It's all a matter of taste. It's all a matter of opinion. 
So a critic's job is not to to be a standard and to say, aha, I declare that, you know, The Godfather is a good movie and, um, you know, Dumb and Dumberer is a bad movie. You know, it's like it, it is exactly that, right? It, uh, that is exactly what the critic's job is. That's the funny part, right? He's kind of, yeah. you know, he's he's very like trying to forcefully say the opposite. And yet it's it's exactly the opposite of what he's claiming. Real quick before. No, oh, sorry. May- yeah, go ahead. No, just to, you know, just so like, just to say that we don't even need to be part of like the cosmoetica crowd who tends to stress, you know, an objective approach. Like this is the, the definition of, I wrote it down before. This is the definition of critic from, from Merriam Webster. It's one who engages often professionally in the analysis, evaluation, or appreciation of works of art or artistic performances. So nowhere in that definition do we find anything about, you know, a critic's level of personal honesty, even though that's just a good thing to have regardless of what you do professionally, right? Being honest is, you know, it's a good personal trait to have, but analysis, evaluation, and appreciation. Um, And appreciation, not not just like personal, what you appreciate or don't appreciate, but like a favorable critical estimate as it relates to evaluation and judgment, right? So you appreciate what you deem to be good. Um, So that's just you know just to, that's that's just the definition of it you could open up a textbook and that already flatly contradicts what what Shives here is saying and and he even like so earlier he makes a good point where he says he approaches a work of art critically always whether or not he dislikes it but then later on he says that it's all about taste it's all about opinion there's no objectivity but why make that separation at all to begin with if there is something apart from your likes or dislikes right um and so it's it's you know it well i think the the, the reason is obvious why why he's doing it he 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 wants to appeal to his readers uh, so that they know he's a good and also as as we said before we started he wants to have views because he makes money he has sure. a Patreon page like Alex, and he, like I said, he averaged maybe 40, yeah. 50,000 views. So there, there is that monetary incentive. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that I don't even know if he's aware of these things as why he's doing it like that. But that's that's like that. Yeah. But you know, let, me, let let's just bring bring the whole the whole critical thing to to a very gut level thing. Forget the arts. Uh, I'm a heterosexual. I can tell you that, uh, you know, I I have certain tastes as to what I like just physically to look at in a woman. Yeah. But that, you know, and usually that that's a petite brunette you know, and olive skinned Latina look, let's, let's say. But there have been bleach blonde bimbo types that I generally don't like. But there's a particular actress that carries it off. And for some reason, I, I like that. I've gone against, against what I like. And I could say, if I'm available, well, if you, if you look at the, the symmetry of her face or her, her figure eight or what, th- these are things. Uh, by the same token, uh, there have been, when I was, uh, especially when I was younger, I'd go out with a girl and guys would say, God, she's nothing. I said, yeah, but I like her. She's something. So the, these, 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 again, are two different axes. And you have to recognize that that what you like and what you dislike, whether it's in a sex partner or in a work of art, is totally different from just evaluating whether that person is smart, whether that person is a good person, or whether that person is physically attractive. These are different things. And and as you just quoted that definition, Zeke, that's what a critic is, is to do, what you quoted, not what he's saying. 
Yeah, let's just finish this video and we'll summarize. Maybe the consensus opinion, right? Most people do believe that The Godfather is a great movie and Dumb and Dumber-er is a lousy movie, but that doesn't mean those are objectively true. Somebody might think that actually The Godfather is a piece of shit and Dumb and Dumber-er, the lesser known, far less appreciated sequel to Dumb and Dumber, is actually a masterpiece. And but, but even like that argument, right? Um, I, I just can't help but stop it here uh, simply because it's like, you know, his whole uh, standard here for objectivity is, well, if somebody else thinks something, right, there can't be objectivity. That's that's a very silly way to go about, you know, anything. And uh, most people would not uh, say that about, you know, any kind of like phenomena they come across in their day-to-day -day lives. A misunderstood jewel that has been unjustly, you know, discarded by popular culture. They might think that. They're not wrong. I disagree with them, but that doesn't mean they're objectively wrong. That's not a critic's job. That's not what a critic does. So I just felt like putting out a video to clarify that, to make that point, to remind everybody the way I see this and the way I approach this. And I think I, I think I can speak for Jason, even though he and I don't often share the same opinion. We disagree with each other a lot in terms of what we like and dislike, even with something like Star Trek that we are in general both huge fans of. Um, but I think we both approach this in a similar way, which is a critic's job is to tell you what they honestly think about the thing they're reviewing. And if you can't trust that it's their honest opinion, then their review is useless. If so I, I can't trust someone to actually make good people to trust that whether you agree with me or disagree. What would you say? If I can't trust the critic to be able to, to evaluate things, that's the bed, that's the bedrock of criticism. That's from I, I don't care what you know, this, this whole video, and it, I think I'm, I sent it to you when it came in again in my feed. This whole video is just basically, I wouldn't call it a mea culpa, but it, it, it's a, a me, me, me video. I'm good. I'm good. I'm not like everyone else that you, the other videos that you watch. I give you a review of a show or a movie or whatever. That's honestly what I think. And it's not because I turned off my brain and just allowed myself to like something. And it's not because I decided ahead of time I was going to hate it. I don't do that. I'm not saying I don't have biases. I'm not saying that, you know, I don't have, um, that I, that I, I don't bring anything from the outside into the review. We all do that. We can't help that. But to the best of my ability, I am giving you my honest take on the thing I'm reviewing. And just because I give it a positive review, that doesn't mean I was not being critical. And just because I give it a negative review, that doesn't mean I was being hypercritical and I refuse to see any of the good parts. Okay? So anyway. Uh... So uh, when when Dan sent this video a few days ago, uh, we were just like talking back and forth, uh, an email. And he, he said, I, uh, this uh, message of mine, I should read verbatim on the show. So I'm going to do that. This is what I uh, sent Dan after first watching the video. These kinds of videos are especially repulsive since it's part of this genre of middle-aged men who have been taught to be so self-effacing while trying to come off as firm. He even promises to, quote, always be honest to the best of my ability, as if being honest is the only ability he would dare cultivate. It's the typical don't stick your neck out, don't actually stand for anything except a bland PC admonition to be honest which itself is dishonest, given how the orientation is simply one of fear, not honesty. Um, and yeah, like uh, when I was watching this, it's, it's like, it's it's very weird to me to find somebody who is, you know, he's very adamant and he's trying to be very firm. And yet the thing that he's adamant and firm about is 
the insistence that you shouldn't actually really stand on anything as an objective claim, right? You shouldn't really put yourself out there as having um, an opinion that is like, you know, an intelligent opinion that is easily defensible and more defensible than some other set of opinions, right? That are not as well articulated or not really well thought thought uh, out, right? I mean, it's true that everybody has different opinions, but what we ought to be interested in is just seeing how, um, you know, what does that articulation looks like, right? Like you're always going to have to deal with the difference of opinion, but in the end, it's really about uh, who's able to really stand on it in a way that makes sense. And uh, I, I'm just noticing it's not only just the arts, but it's kind of everywhere in life, right? This kind of idea that, you know, like there, there's something about men, right? Like people love seeing a man that is like all beat up. Right. And it's not, you know, is is very like willing to like waver back and forth. Right. Uh, th this th this is something that has been, you know, in construction since the beginning of time. Right. Uh, society tends to not like those that sort of stand on what they say and are not going to hide behind like, OK, OK, well, if you disagree, that's fine. Right. We just have a difference of opinion. Right. To really stand on something, to put your neck out, to take the punishment, right, to take the consequences for believing something, um, there's a reason why just historically you could just see as a tendency, as a biological tendency, this is something that gets uh, repressed. And, you know, he's just kind of like going along with it, right? He's really taking the easy way out. And, you know, it's not as if that there's nothing to say for honesty and a critic, but it's it's it really is like the bare, bare minimum, right? I mean, like, because like Dan said, if you're not honest, you are essentially a troll. The reason why the dishonesty of a Pauline Kale as a film critic or an Armin White as a film critic, the reason why their dishonesty is so bad is because when you read their, their reviews, you can never actually know what they're going to say, right? Uh, even if you read a hundred other reviews and a hundred other films, when they approach each new movie, it's everything is afresh. Every assumption that they might have had about life or anything or art goes out the window, right? So you can never tell what they're going to say. It's just totally random. That's really where the dishonesty is a problem. But most people aren't really like that, right? I mean, he, he's just essentially making a, a nearly 15-minute video where he's uh, imploring everybody to the most basic standard of just like any human interaction right if you're going to go around assessing something so yeah well let me put let me there's one one other thing i mentioned how uh, uh sort of his stuff with the atheists and other stuff uh, a few years ago i think three or four years ago he got into an argument with a guy who i think was also from the atheist community and they sort of became enemies i forget the guy's name but i remember um if you notice <laughs> here thinning hair i'm 58 alex is 20 years younger so he's he's totally totally bald he shaved i've been balding i've been balding since i've been 16 yeah. and and it looks like you've got a fairly high forehead zeke now not notice shives is in his own home here and he's wearing the hat and there was this whole big get together about 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 his being bald. and the the other guy uh the atheist posted photos of him without his hat and so it, it, it's funny that i'm being honest not that not not that there's anything to be uh, to be ashamed about having thinning hair or being bald or whatnot but the guy who who is who spends a whole time in this and other videos too where he, he talks about honesty and whatnot uh is is, is covering up 
the thing that people see most when is someone's face and 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 receding hairline or something you know this this is this is what what emotion does it means i'm going to be wearing the same cap in every video inside my home it's actually most people consider it fairly rude to wear a, a hat inside one's home once once time you take it off and you put it down or on on the coat the coat rack or whatever so i just find it, it's just so emblemic of, of of the whole thing of the of this need to be honest because i'm a good person thing <laughs> Uh, 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 is everything in a hat? Is everything? Yeah, everything looks like it's a hat. So there's a hat here. Oh yeah, it, there's it, a hat it's, there. It, it, it's hat, hat, hat. And like I said, a former friend of his turned enemy in the atheist community. Oh, he's posted, not wearing a hat here. Posted videos and yeah, yeah. Um, um, this this reminds me of uh, if you guys ever heard of Tim Pool, who's yeah, just like this beanie, um, Mr. Beanie Man. Yeah, he, he wears just a beanie because he's been balding. I'm guessing like me since he was a teenager. Uh, but he's like he, he's so insecure about it that he even starts like doing this thing. Where he's like, oh, if I take off my beanie, people are gonna recognize me in the street and kill me. Right? That's literally what he does. <laughs> um, anyway, if, yeah. If we're yeah. ever, I think I assume we're done with the Shives video. Yeah. Um, just to. To close a few things um one uh what was i going to say um i think i don't know if you can agree with this alex but probably because he does a lot of political commentary it might be a more um like a a, a particular anxiety for these people to be, not come across as like a grifter or a bad faith actor and so that's why the uh appeal to honesty is so strong in that video um but but last thing like I think we'll probably see this borne out across all the other videos too. He when he when he does sort of uh he does like a caricature of what objectivity is and he and he like mimes like a some objective critic saying I'm the standard like this is what's right this is what's good. Although that's not what we mean when we're, we're talking about objectivity, right? It's I think a lot of this uh appeal to subjectivity and what Shives is saying is sort of a reaction against a mistaken assumption of what it means to be objective when you're um when you're uh, assessing art, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's not like to make yourself the standard, but it's to hold yourself to a higher standard of what is good and what is bad or what's in between, um, regardless of what you might uh, like or dislike about it. So it's yeah, not and, like, you know, and, you, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? And, yeah. and yeah, doing it like in a progressive fashion, right? In the right, sense yeah. that um, you're always working towards being, you know, more objective than your last exactly. critique, right? Exactly, if I, yeah. if I, If I ever like think, for example, that, you know, there's a work of art that I thought uh, more highly or like less of. And then, I mean, like over time, like for instance, like I remember when I was uh, younger and I was first introduced to Walt Whitman, I just could not get into Walt Whitman because at the time, like I was reading more kind of like outright, you know, like poetic, poetic stuff, like John Donne or whatever, trying to understand that, uh, Wallace Stevens. So when I read Walt Whitman, a lot of it just struck me as just very prosaic, but it, mm. you know, it took me years to change that and i mean like it's like an aspirational thing right you're gonna yeah. change your mind but you want to be working towards not towards like some you know uh, uh aesthetic disposition or some sort of like you know thing with taste or but like just getting closer and closer to uh objective judgment which would allow yeah. you to have an objective judgment uh, on things that are all kinds of different styles, all kinds of different yeah. media, right? Um, so it's like it's like it's supposed to be a slow process, but you know, it's like this whole thing where you know you're condemning even that aspirational. You know, I'm going to try, right? It's it's almost like when you listen to people like that, 
uh, he's telling you, do not try, do not yeah. try. Like, it's almost as if he's trying to like, you know, like a crab in a bucket, he's trying to pull you back in. Like, don't you dare, you know, come out uh, and try to do better for yourself. Or don't you dare, you know, say that you could do this and that, you know, you, you should be just like I am. Well, he, the the thing too with all of these people, and, and like I said, Shai isn't really the arts. He, that video is just a, an outlier. But someone like this fellow that we're looking at from the canvas, if if you admit that there is objectivity in evaluation, then God forbid you can be wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, uh, I don't. I forget when you contacted me, Zeke, but it's probably only four or five years ago. Back in like seventeen or eighteen. Uh, I did a video, uh, what was it on the Monty Hall problem thing, Alex? Yeah. Uh, was, I don't remember. And, 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 and this, this is a, a, a little conundrum that that's always been, um, but anyway, I did a video about it and Alex and, uh, fellow Keith, uh, said I was wrong. And after going through permutations, I did a follow-up video a couple of months later where I said I was wrong. You're never going to get that from people like this. Because being wrong, it, it, it you know th this this is something they can't bring. So if something is subjective, everyone is equal. Uh, if, if if I if I as a critic have spent twenty years uh, evaluating whatever it might be, films or, or, or art or, or sculpture or whatever, uh, I risk being wrong if there if there is a substrate that for objectivity. But if everything is subjective. I can't ever be wrong. Every everything's good, and we go skipping off to do daisy chaining. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I am going to play this at one point twenty five. Uh, maybe I should play it at the regular speed, uh, simply because. Well, maybe at the beginning. Okay, at the beginning we'll play yeah, it. At let, let's speed. just hear his YouTube voice. Yeah, because yeah, uh, this is uh, there's a performative aspect here that we're going to talk about. So this is the, the okay, canvas just look, channel. Just, just look, just look at how serious he looks. God damn, this stuff is fucking important. One of the questions I get the most is, how do I analyze art? How do I appreciate art for myself? And I've always had a difficulty answering that question because first, I don't think there's only one way to look at art. And second, I don't think you should rely on me to tell you how. However, I will answer the question here. And because I want to demonstrate the variety of ways you can look at and engage with art, I contacted some other YouTubers who analyze, appreciate, and break down art. I hope that after this video, you will feel inspired to look at art and find the most enjoyable and compelling way for you to analyze it. Now, let me just ask you, if, if someone came up to talk to you like this in real life, would you be put off about it? There's a, a certain kind of creepiness to that. I could uh, imagine, imagine he, um, let's, I'll assume he's heterosexual just for the purposes of this. I don't know if he's gay or not, and it doesn't matter. But imagine he went up to some, some woman on a date and after having a nice conversation, he was talking like this. And he said that she invited him back to this place. And he was like, you know, how do you want me to pleasure you? Uh, should I use my tongue as I spread your labia apart? I, I, I don't have to do it. But if you want, yeah, the, it, it's so affected. It's so, you know, you want to just smack them upside the head. I, I Well, I will say this. I remember, uh, so, I mean, I, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, when I went to college uh, for the first time, I was in a, it was in a pretty different environment, right? I mean, uh, compared to what my high school was like, 
versus going to college, completely different experience. And I remember one of the first things that I noticed just interacting with uh, like the staff and maybe to some degree, even some of the students, but this was primarily like people that were like, you know, professors or whatever. Uh, they would do this all the time, right? This kind of affectation, or they would have these sort of things that I didn't know were like, uh, maybe you can't call them catchphrases, but uh, they're kind of like, they're like ways to sort of like subtly de-escalate a situation, even if there's no actual escalation. It's just kind of like to be as inoffensive as possible. They might use certain words or they would have certain tics in speech. I can't even like think of any off the top of my head, but I remember hearing that for the first time thinking like, uh, do do they think that they have to talk this way? Like, it, like, do they feel like this is like some sort of compulsion to be in like in this like professional setting? So I remember yeah. that being extremely jarring, and a lot of it was like that. And I remember thinking like, th this is nothing like the people that I knew growing up, right? And uh, um, you know, quickly I realized it was all an affect, right? But yeah. um, you know, like yeah, definitely like it is it is off putting. I mean, it's, it is, it is, it's kind of cringe. I will say a lot of these channels are these sort of like relatively young people who, you know, think, oh, I'm interested in the arts. I'm passionate about the arts. Let me put myself in front of a camera and just sort of like, you know, tell the world mm -hmm. what I feel. But I think there is something, you know, when you put yourself on screen, there's automatically a performative aspect to it. So again, these are just young people who decide for themselves, I'm going to put myself on the internet. And I think it's clear that they haven't really trained themselves how to appear natural and comfortable on screen. And so they have this sort of like affected thing, which is easily seen through. Um, I, mean, I mean, like if I were to start a channel and I'm, you know, performing some scripted thing about my thoughts, I I probably wouldn't appear super comfortable. But um, But like it's just so proliferated everywhere now that everyone is just the people parody the sort of the like measure sort of like kind of hushed uh youtube voice on uh, which you know they sort of like softly lecture you through this or that um but yeah i mean it's 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 annoying but everyone you guys have already said it off about it yeah so let's yeah so let's do um 1.25 now since this is going to get into the interviews it can be daunting to analyze art but by the end of this video i hope to give you the confidence to do it and grow from it As always, there's a live stream right after this video, and it's a lot of fun, so don't miss out on it. Oh, and there's also a Canvas Discord server, check it out in the description. The first question I want to tackle is, is looking at art difficult? And here are the answers I got. You know what, I would say, like, if you want to know how to look at art, go and stand in a gallery for an hour, because people know how to do it, it's an instinct. We know how to look at art, you know? Or, you know, the best thing to do is go around Paris for the day and when it's a school day and look at the kids and how they look at art, you know, and, and they, they know how to look at art. We all know how to look at art, but we pretend we don't, you know, it's, um, people make such a big fuss. I think sometimes I think it took you longer to write, um, if you need to explain art, then it's not art on my channel than it does to Google something about, you know, it's like, it's, it's not that difficult. Art is less difficult than you think. Uh, so what do you guys think about that? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's like one of those things where, uh, yeah, you start off making some correct observations and then you kind of like, uh, uh go, you know, go off in the wrong direction. I mean, there, there is, I think something to the idea that people natively do understand uh, sort of what to look for. Um, and it's also true that simply by being around, uh, either academic opinions or just kind of like, you know, popular pressure of some other sort, uh, that gets very much cooked out of them. Right. Um, where, where suddenly it's like things that they would otherwise feel like it's not, 
uh, something that might, you know, not be good. They, they might deceive themselves. I mean, Jessica talked about that before. I remember like when I was, uh, like first getting into poetry as a teenager, there, there, there was stuff that I would read that immediately I knew was like great writing, like, you know, the poems of County Colon, and I wanted to figure out why. And then I would read like book reviews and poetry reviews, and they would like, you know, have like, I don't know, like a stanza of like some random contemporary poet, and it was garbage. And they would discuss it in like very high flown terms. And I would think, you know, so am I missing something? Am I supposed to be having a positive response to this or a positive appraisal of some sort? Uh, so I, I do think there's something to the idea that people natively are probably better at it than maybe like the wider social fabric would allow, right? Because the wider social fabric, uh, I just mean the sort of like the art world as a business, right? They they want there to be this mystique. They're, they want there to be, um, you know, something that cannot be penetrated because if it cannot be penetrated, uh, they could continue, you know, milking that cow, right? And, and asking everybody to come to them for an appropriate appraisal. But th that final comment about, you know, art is actually easy. I, I wouldn't call appraisal easy. I think it's easier than society might generally allow, but that's, you know, very far from calling it easy. It's not easy. It's part of the whole thing that everyone can be an artist if they really try. 10,000 mm -hmm. hours and stuff. It's all bullshit. And I, I've seen that British guy's guy. I don't know that there's a more Sayendi guy, but uh, um, uh, it's th these guys... Uh, I, I don't even, I, if you listen to the way they talk, and I'll assume that they're both artists, at least, I think the canvas guy is a painter himself. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't give me a good prospect. Uh, the... No. I, I, I think my gut answer, my like hot take answer is that it's hard. Um, that I, I, uh, it's something I spend a lot of time doing. It's something I work at and engaging with the ideas I like give myself discipline I mean we both do right we set ourselves deadlines and we try to learn the thing in time to speak articulately about it yeah I, I do find it hard like to give myself the I don't know how to explain this but like the discipline that we have to have to teach ourselves how to do this and, and to look at art and to keep on practicing and to build up that visual vocabulary it takes time it sometimes takes reading boring books um but I don't know if the value is so great I was super happy to get two different answers to that question, and to be clear, I don't believe they necessarily contradict each other. I agree with both creators because of the following distinction, and this might be your first lesson in learning to look at art. To put it simply, there are aesthetics and cognition. You may disagree with this distinction, but I think it can help reconcile both of the perspectives I showed. There's a pleasure and a value in looking at art for what it looks like. There's also a pleasure and a value in looking at art with its context, its ideas, and its thought-provoking questions. And he actually slants, uh, it seems, in the channel much more towards this kind of like, uh, you know, sociological uh, interpretation. But I mean, even this distinction, right? Like when people use the word aesthetics, I'm not like half the time, you know, at this point, because like I, I just like, you know, Dan, uh, he started his, uh, you know, uh, anti like dislike crusade many years ago. I've been on an anti like don't use the word aesthetics crusade for a while, but uh, it's not catching on because uh, I mean, to me, like when when I think of aesthetics, right, specifically like aesthetics and philosophy, we are just talking about literally like physical responses to the arts, right? We're talking about pleasure or a lack of pleasure. We're talking about um, maybe how colors might make you feel. Uh, we're talking about, you know, I I I, I, I the like these beauty. 
yeah, yeah. Your be- beauty, 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 is an, yeah, beauty, beauty is another thing. Yeah, something about beauty is a quality. Beauty is yeah. not what anything is about. Beauty is incidental. There's a beautiful flower. There's a beautiful bird. There's a beautiful woman. There's a beautiful painting. Yeah, and even the word beauty itself. I mean, it's it's so um, like I, I try not to use that phrase for uh, describing artworks, but there are some situations where it just feels like it that it's appropriate. Like for instance, like if you watch uh, the the killing of the Chinese bookie, I think that's a beautiful film, and yet you know, scene by scene, it's not you know, it's not what generally people would call beautiful, right? So. But, you know, in another respect, right, if you're talking about human beauty, right, there is obviously an objective quality there, right? You could make uh, uh, some assessments in terms of like facial symmetry or whatever, right? Grant that a lot of that is uh, pseudoscience, but a lot of it isn't. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where people use phrases, but they don't really spend enough time, like they don't dwell on the actual definitions they don't really talk about the, the true uh distinctions in the way that they should so uh, to me to me his two his, his aesthetics and cognition is, is just bullshit go back yeah to, a... when i talk about art and i said evaluation you look at art there's really two components to evaluate whether you're we are planning to write something or create the art or you're evaluating the art critically and that's ideation and execution what is it about and then how well did you do that for example, one of the things that strikes a lot of people, uh, uh, well, let, let, I'll give you an example of an artist who's great ideator, but terrible execution, Philip K. Dick. He was mm-hmm. a guy who came up with a lot of gimmicks for his stories. His ideas were interesting. They had some philosophical depth. His execution was totally lousy. He he, he had no ability to create character. He didn't know how to... to to uh, realistically uh, uh, talk about these ideas philosophically. So he missed, he got point one, but the execution was lousy. There are other people who have some good ideas and you can you can see uh, that, well, uh, they may not have good ideas, but they they, they, they can craft well, they, they can execute well, but there's nothing there. Um, I've seen painters, for example, who are very skilled and they can do this and that and and and, and they can they can uh, they they're good with perspective they're good with with the place and characters shading chiaroscuro or whatever it might be but there's nothing deeper there the way there is in say a dali painting salvador dali or picasso or magritte or whoever it might be there there are people who uh who are uh, are very good technically with poetry uh but they don't have they don't have that Wallace Stevens like ideation or Hard Crane ideation, but they they they're pretty good. Uh, Delamere, Walter yeah, Delamere. yeah, that's the guy. You yeah. look at Walter yeah. Delamere, his, you know, I don't even get into meter, but poetic meter, I, I destroyed many times before. But his stuff is mellifluous. His stuff is gorgeous in terms of sound, but there's nothing there. It's an odorless fart intellectually. So those are the different kinds. So when he's talking about aesthetics, what he, again, we're getting to the subjective, the beauty. We, we, we don't want to deal with things. Why, for example, would art be any different than any other human endeavor? The uh, art, you, you can evaluate it. You can evaluate whether the house is well built or not. You know, uh, there are architects. Uh, who's the famous guy with falling waters? Uh, uh, you know, it's a beautiful home, but it's a lou- it's lousily built, you know. Um, uh, and 
you know, so this is yet again, the, the, they always find ways to step aside from having to put their dick on the chopping block. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it isn't, I mean, he, he sort of says like, you can disagree with it, but it is an unhelpful binary. I feel because I mean, it seems to, I mean, that's sort of the binary that gets set up by these two people that he's interviewing anyway, but it seems to set up the idea that there's art. You can only either be sort of like in front of an art and let it just sort of hit you as like a, a wave of sensation and you don't cogitate at all about it. And that's how you appreciate it. Or like you come to a painting or so, and this is a lot about visual art, which I'm not as experienced in. And then you have an education in it and you can understand context and meaning and, and all that. But I mean, I think that assumes that aesthetics of a painting like color or figuration can't have its own context or, or, or loaded baggage to it or a history. Um, and so I think, again, like it's kind of a boring answer, but I think the real answer is somewhere in the middle, right? You, 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 you allow yourself to be sensitive to the visual aspects of like color and, and shape and how um, a painter is, you know, tracing this particular line or the shade. And you understand that there's always a, a history, there's a tradition of art and how it changes and how one artist might execute a particular aesthetic decision better than another, right? So that's 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 what I have to say about it. I, if Ethan yeah. were here, I'm sure he'd, I, I shared this video with Ethan actually, he couldn't he couldn't stomach it. So, yeah. uh, so <laughs> and, and based on what you said, there's actually gonna be something a little later in the video that we can yeah. touch upon. An artwork can have only one of these two aspects or it can have both. I'd argue that we can use instincts to appreciate a work of art for its aesthetics, for how it looks, and how it can grasp us emotionally. However, the difficulty of looking at a work of art can come in understanding its message, ideas, or concept through its context. Personally, I find more pleasure in looking at art through its context and by understanding its ideas, as I find that to be the most challenging and allows potentially for more growth. Can you be wrong when looking at a work of art? I feel like this might be where many people get intimidated by the idea of engaging with art. There's a fear of failure, of not understanding a work of art, which is probably at the root of the many messages and comments I get asking me how to look at art. I've, I've spent my whole life around art. You know, I've worked for the highest end galleries. I, you know, I, I studied fine art at college. I became an artist. I was the worst artist in the world. And, you know, I've, I've kind of done it all. And it's, um, and I still don't understand what's going on. You know, I just, and, you know. I mean, that's kind of a, a crazy thing to yeah. say, right? He has a like he has a YouTube channel. Great art, explain what is it, close to like a million subscribers. He says, "I have no idea what I'm looking at." Um, that's a problem. I mean, that that's the thing. Like, and and they're they're turning. But I that get into, plenty of poon, Alex. I get they're, poon. They're, they're, like, think about it. They're turning that into like a fucking like you know like like it's something noble about it, right? Like, I I have all these subscribers. I'm putting out all these messages. I don't really know what I'm looking at, but it's okay because we're all in it together. I'm not. I'm the only one getting the money. Money. Yeah, like th th this passing off of all these like negative traits as like something positive and aspirational. It's just so. This is why, honestly, this is why I didn't want to watch these videos. I knew, I knew this shit was going to be something I'll have to deal with, right? And um, I hate this passing off of these qualities as if it's positive. It's not. I think it's. Yeah, people quite often ask me, you know, what do I like about art? You know, what kind of work do I like? You know, I hate I hate people say, what's your favorite? You know, that's you can't do that. But I think, um, you know, I, I went to some, to see some work this week, this weekend. Say I like it, but not my favorite. I know that but... the work that interests me the most is work that I don't understand. That That is it. 
if I don't understand what's going on, like when people scratch their heads and say, you know, what is this? You know, what, what is Jackson Pollock's like? That's a really good thing. It's really good to not understand. You know, it's okay. And he and he doesn't even explain, right? Maybe there was something more to it, and uh, or, this other or, guy cut it off. But he doesn't explain, like, okay, why is it good to not understand and just leave it at that? Or why? Or, or that abstract expressionism could be bullshit. Yeah. All right. But that's the thing. Like, if if you're trying to like maximize an audience, or a lot of this just it does really go down to you know uh, expanding, 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 and you have to get everybody in. You know, like you have to say that everything is equally worthy in some regards, right? I mean, a lot of people are huge fans of Jackson Pollock. That's just a fact, right? So, um, given that that's the case, uh, they don't want to necessarily. Because that's the thing, like if you do start to uh, isolate yourself in that way, very often what happens instead as a compensation is, okay, if you're going to start saying negative things about, you know, abstract expressionism, you also now have to go to, I don't know, like right-wing politics as well, right? Because it seems like all the right-wingers for their own, you know, totally, um, you know, compulsive reasons, uh, they hate, you know, one form of art versus another, but they can't quite explain why right and when they do uh start explaining uh, the stuff that they're into it's not necessarily any better right if you if you look at some like right wingers like there's like a bunch of like right wing twitter accounts for like the arts um you could tell like it's just literally the same as this right it's all kind of emotional responses and you know they, they bring the politics in a, as a compensation additionally i think that there's something interesting about using our like being aware of your own visual habits your own visual vocabulary and your own visual habits when you're looking at a painting even if it's completely inappropriate um like uh there's a there's a botticelli painting that is of the annunciation and if you don't know like if you don't have the christian iconography in your head and you don't know that that's gabriel telling mary that she's pregnant um but you know college football really well then it looks like gabriel is doing the heisman pose and is like threatening to tackle mary who's like a little bit scared and is pulling back a little bit and just like knowing I feel like Mary's doing the Heisman pose. He doesn't yeah. even know but, 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 but it's like, why, why would, even if you're really into football, that's all you know, why would you ever do it? Like, that's the thing. Like, uh, he's literally like, on the one hand, it's kind of like, all right, we're going to be so expansive and politically correct. And we're going to get as many people as we can, you know, under, you know, this umbrella and into this audience. But at the same time, they're treating, you know, like the, the, the beer drinking football guy as a fucking noble savage, right? Like he's not going to be able to conceptualize uh, uh, art, you know, outside of this limited world. Like why, why would a, like this is the thing, a human being wouldn't do that, right? Even if you yeah. are just all about one thing. But, he, um, but he, here's the thing, to go back to the Botticelli paintings, let's say that you just came from, Alpha Centauri, and you're an alien, and you're looking at that, and you say, well, uh, it, it looks like a, a, a two-dimensional representation of the animals that dominate this planet. Uh, I The one has wings. Uh, I, we don't know what that is. The other seems to be a female. It looks like some kind of mating courtship. Uh uh, and and maybe maybe those people write in, in their equivalents of art magazines uh, about the art that they found on, on Earth. Well, that would be a legitimate interpretation because there's no way, for example, I mean, uh, you know, uh, languages don't survive, for example. In 10,000 years of uh, nuclear waste disposals, they've tried to get pictures that that say danger 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 for people in 10,000 years so that they don't go digging in you know after after maybe the 
a great pandemic wipes out most people. You know, it's very difficult to find something that 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 can convey something totally. So I would say that you know, if this looks like some kind of mating courtship between uh, a, a human female and a somewhat human-esque male. That could be a legitimate interpretation from from alien eyes, and it would, now, wouldn't it might... it, wouldn't it even be kind of true? Like, doesn't she get pregnant after this meeting? Like, it would be kind of true, like in some you know, like elaborate way. Yeah, I think he uh, was the herald of Jesus, you know, and yeah. God coming in, God raping her. Let's say, let's say it. <laughs> um, yeah, just to echo, like, you don't even have to be an alien; you can just be a regular person, and you probably are familiar. You, you may not have grown up in church, but. You probably know what an angel is. You're probably familiar with, you know, maybe somewhat tangentially with the story of Mary. Um, and you can still look at this painting and, and and appreciate things about it without the sort of the context of art history or Christian tradition. Um, and but, you could talk, yeah, talk, I mean, talk about the kinetic motion of the two Exactly. Characters. Yeah. I mean, you see that he's in this pose and she's sort of drawing back. And um, I mean, you could come up with a story that's maybe even different from the Christian fable. And still have a valid um, interpretation just from that, just from the sort of like un uh, unbaggaged interpretation alone. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be a long video, so I don't want to talk too much. Pulling back a little bit, and just like knowing that you've got that Heisman Trophy vocabulary in your head, um, and that that impacts the way that you're seeing that image. That is part of the referendum on how we see, and it's part of our visual vocabulary, and it's our visual vocabulary interacting with Botticelli's. And there's like an interesting conversation we have there. You're not discovering any secrets of that painting, but it becomes like, you know, what about, like, how is it socially so ingrained in our uh, visual habits that we see this thing in a completely inappropriate space? The reason why people are intimidated by like art analysis or art interpretation or art engagement, I feel like it's because they might be afraid of being wrong in a way, or not having that visual That's, culture that's true. I just said that. But what you're saying is even if you're, even if you're, you're, you're looking at the enunciation through football, you know, American football, like there's still a value in there because it might not say that much about the enunciation in itself, but it's saying about, it's saying something about you and the way you're looking yeah. at art and, and that in itself is a form of engagement. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing like this this total fixation on if if i could just make it somehow about me yeah. well you know at least that's something and it's not something right it really really isn't it's the opposite of something right um you're just you're just totally expanding yourself uh past the point of it being in any any way appropriate um i think if, if i'm extrapolating that's also like like interpret artworks as you wish and do do you know and, and try to find value in those interpretations whatever those interpretations may be right and, and look at how normal he sounds just kind of like just talking you know regularly uh you know granted maybe he has like a little bit of that uh, affect uh, creeping in but yeah yeah no i think that's exactly what i'm trying to say is yeah find value in being aware like because so many of our biases come from the way that we look at things um uncritically and we just like have our visual habits and we have our in our biases and we're going to see things um in places that aren't necessarily there and the more that you can look at art and become aware of of like how you see and be more intentional with the way that you see and like the, the way that you can learn about yourself through looking at art i think is really valuable so right i, I think so long as you're building authentic relationships with the world through the symbols that art gives you like you you're, you're winning like you're not wrong you're 
doing it right. So what we got so far is that you can look at art through its context or perhaps more instinctively and that it's okay and even good to not understand an artwork. And even if you take a shot at an analysis and you're wrong, that analysis and that engagement with the work of art in itself has value because it can lead you to be critical about your way of seeing. To look at works of art, you simply need to do it. James Payne from Great Art Explains says to look at art and let your instincts carry you through the experience. I mean, and he, you know, he's correct about that. This, this is generally how you begin, right? You begin by uh, sort of like catering to an instinct and you end by honing your instinct through experience. And But the only way to do that, right? I, I feel like uh, the problem with this video is they might begin with this kind of like idea of the instinct and yet they never go past that into actually honing it, right? Based on uh, having some kind of program in mind, right? Of doing something. Well, bad art and bad criticism serve only one good purpose, and that's to to show what not to do. That really yeah. is it. And you have to be able to say, we don't do that. We don't make painting, uh, this painting is bad because it's whatever it might be, the, whether we're talking about angles or chiaroscuro, or it has a kitsch element that shouldn't be there, uh, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but that's the only thing that it really serves. And, and he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't state that he said he says everything up to that point that bad art and bad criticism the only good thing about them is what not to do mm -hmm. james earl from emulsiendi says to practice and with time this practice will help you develop a visual language and an eye for art so you're not afraid of looking at art anymore that's great you're ready to go to your closest museum and do what exactly James from Amalsiendi compared the museum to a church in the sense that the context in itself gives value to the artworks inside the establishment. I think a museum is a great way to initiate yourself to art because just through the fact that artworks are framed and hung in a prestigious building, this leads you to give more importance and therefore encourages you to engage more with these artworks. So I asked our creators, how do they look at art in a museum or gallery? I think for if, me, I'm not going to gallery that would, wouldn't, wouldn't have value. What, That's what was that? If, if it wasn't in a museum or a highfalutin gallery, it wouldn't have, have value. That's mm -hmm. implicit in what he just stated, and he, mm -hmm. he doesn't even recognize it. So it, it's, it's what appeals to me visually. So I, um, I would quite often say to people that if you get a group of 50 people together, then more often than not, they will gravitate towards the great art. More often than not. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's, um, sometimes it's visual, sometimes it's color. Um, Lots of different reasons, but I think for me, I approach it as I think most people do from a visual angle. First of all, I would say that, and then um... well, he didn't even. That's the thing. Like, so I can sort of understand what he's saying in the sense that, well, I mean, there's a few things. First of all, if you're in a museum, especially if you're like a, in a museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is a primarily older paintings, right? Time has passed, right? So they have already been sort of picked by posterity, which means that on average, you know, the, a painting in the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art is going to be uh, most likely better than some, you know, random uh, painting you might find in, you know, a contemporary gallery from like, you know, artists of the last five years, right? Because you we didn't have the benefit of time. Right. So there's that element to it. But he also didn't even uh, examine like like they would gravitate towards great art. OK, which which means what? And mm -hmm. he said, you know, the the colors are like, but what exactly are we talking mm -hmm. about? And, and like a lot of these very important terms don't actually get defined. And if they are defined, 
you know, such as like the, the cognition versus aesthetics thing, like they don't dwell long enough to even explain, you know, all the your caveats and everything else they have to throw in, in any kind of discussion like this, right? It's like, you know, we have to push this through uh, over the course of 26 minutes and 45 seconds. And, you know, that's just not going to be sufficient. Implicit in what this the, the, the British guy is, is saying is that uh, context uh, helps art that if it's in a prestigious building if if it's if it's, a, if it's really well lit uh that's that that is going to bias people who think it must be good something's wrong with me jessica talks about this all the time about how uh, uh her uh, with with writing or whatnot she would go to a, a teacher might feature something and 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 jessica would be like well this is clearly bad bad and this is making me question myself in the negative way because something might obviously bad be bad i remember i over the years i've gotten many emails from people uh where they'll send a poem you know they'll send seven or eight poems and uh here and there one will say oh and and it it, it it might be bad or the, the one might be good or, or what, there might be one good out of six poems. And someone will say, you know, that poem that I sent you was writ actually written by famous poet so-and-so. And sometimes I've known that. Other times I haven't because, you know, I don't know every every poem. But I'd say, yeah, but I, I wrote you and said what didn't work about this poem. It doesn't matter whether this was written by W.B. Yeats or by you. It, it's not a good poem. They're trying to trip me up, you know, to, to score some point. But it, it's like, it does it doesn't matter this guy though he thinks that putting it in a prestigious building featuring an artwork if it if it's there it must be good this is the same mentality that uh uh the 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 salonistas back in this uh 19th century france had that 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 somehow art builds upon itself i've had people uh there was one guy I remember I actually put the poem on I forget the, the, one of the British idiots uh, that was uh, about a decade ago he finally wrote a poem I, I uh, unknowingly helped me or there and he thought oh now I'm in the club I said because you wrote a good poem doesn't mean that you're a good poet or a great poet it means you wrote one good poem it doesn't work like that it's not like oh you passed the bar now you're a lawyer mm -hmm. yeah and I mean like that's the thing about uh writing or about like or in general uh to to really view it as a practice i think takes a lot of both the pressure off as well as the kind of like you know all the kind of like highfalutin associations just out of uh out of the picture right if you just view it as you know art uh is just something that you do right uh, writing is just something that you do the more of it that you do the more of a writer you are right any anything external whether it's like publication or cultivating fans like all, all that is relevant to uh, the actual kind of like verbal task that we're talking about you know does it affect me emotionally is, is very important to me as well as to, as to what reaction i get and by emotional i don't mean that in a good sense it, it can be anger as well i quite often get angry about art um and i think that's a good thing it's good to get angry about art or have any kind of emotion really so uh, indifference is the worst thing you can have in art i think um the next thing i look at is the label so i'm uh, i love labels <laughs> in galleries so this it's i find it just one thing is the date you know, I look at the date and then the country. So I look at where it's from, where the artist is from. And then I start thinking about the history um, from that period. So I, I quite often look at history before I think about the, the mechanics of an artwork. Um, so, um, and then sometimes the name is, is it interests me, whether it's a, a man or a woman. Um, sometimes not, not so much really. Um, if it's a painting from 
you know, 1700s, and I realize it's by a woman, then I start to look at it in a different way. But generally, it's um, the data is all context. Like, him. They, he, he, he's basically saying he is incapable of engaging the art that's before him. Yeah, I mean, there is something to say for, uh, you know, dates and uh, getting some context. But for the most part, I mean, look, like, even, even if you don't know the honestly this is probably why a lot of religious painting and stuff like that or like you know a mythology in a painting why i i tend to be turned off by that genre because a lot of it is uh, so kind of context driven right um a, a lot of it tries to use the context and the reflexivity as you know kind of like a go around for the art itself right i mean obviously a lot of medieval art uh, had a very kind of utilitarian function in the same way that i mean i've said similar things about rap music right uh the fact that it's so re reflexive uh it's a knock against it in the long term right um because eventually people either don't care about uh the the religion in the context of like you know religious writing or religious uh, painting um and all you have left is just like you know the figuration what are the figures doing uh what what you know is there like uh, some appropriate tension in the fingers you know um the, the the reason why something like uh Sistine Chapel some of those you know I, I don't think every one of those like images in the Sistine Chapel is great or anything but you know the core one of, of Adam uh being touched by God that's a great image specific you don't have to really know anything at all um uh you don't need a uh, context to really make that sort of determination some of the best Michelangelo sculptures right you don't even need to know the context to understand why it works so well so uh, uh context you know it's it, it's useful in many respects and you know there is like I do think there is some level of subjectivity in the arts that you know when it's all said and done and we get kind of like the you know kind of like a synthesis of maybe everything that we're talking about maybe centuries down the line uh i think there's going to de definitely be some role for subjectivity in the arts but it's definitely not uh, of the kind that people are pushing for now right um so it is when people talk about everything being all subjective that's the yeah. problem uh in an objective universe you can have subjective things in a subjective universe, you can have objective things. But if you're saying that everything is subjective, well, that's patently false. Uh, there isn't. If there's one, if there's one objective fact, it objectifies a whole subjective universe because there's things to measure it against. Because if you have that one subjective thing, we can say, oh, that's a mile away, or that that one thing has a certain level of brightness. Then we've got three objective things and it, things expand out from there oh how long has that objective thing been there oh three eons you know um the, the whole thing the thing people don't understand that that it, when i talk about you can have an objective that doesn't mean i'm saying that everything is objective as i you know if, if i compare uh, like I said, if I compare, uh, obviously, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey with Plan 9 from Outer Space, 2001 is objectively better. Steve Shives was wrong. But if I if I, if I I compare that to La Dolce Vita or to Persona, like I said, a Bergman film, you can make legitimate arguments that one of those three films is the, be the best one. It's harder, though, and people don't want to do the difficult thing. It's easy to say that, you know, Ingmar Bergman is a better filmmaker than Steven Spielberg, but you know, is Ingmar Bergman a better fil filmmaker than Akira Kurosawa? Then things get a bit subjective. It's easy for us to say, but uh, it wouldn't be easy for you know the ma vast majority of people would say like, oh, they're both equally great, right? Um, 
which is like another layer layer to all this, right? Uh, sorting out uh, opinions from normie opinions. And I think those those are the first two things I do. They're the first important things is whether it, it hits me straight away and whether um, and what I think the history surrounding it is. And then after that, I start, I feel like I relax a little bit and then kind of let the artist. The context relaxes him, right? It makes it mm -hmm. less fearful to uh, approach the work. This lead me around okay. the painting. Can we, can we like, I mean, this is another, we're only 11 or 12, yeah. almost 12 minutes. Into All right, let's just is there anything through. really here? that we need to go over more some of the I other don't know. Did, didn't you send me this link no i i did oh you did okay yeah Somebody sent i mean it was it was just to i think it's just more more to the point of the constant appeals to emotional responses over anything that could be objective um it's just you know another example of that uh on youtube of and and mm -hmm. this guy i mean he later on he claims that he sort of contradicts his own and we've seen him sort of uh, imply this, but he contradicts his own channel name by saying he doesn't even try to explain art as if there is nothing there mm -hmm. uh, to sort of rally around that he can educate. I mean, he seems to be fearful of even attempting to educate an audience I mean, the, about, of the three you know, of them, as, as much as the, the, the bandana boys uh, has the, the YouTube boys, the British guy is probably the most annoying one. Cause you know, you know, he's just doing this to, to, to yeah. have money to go to pubs and meet women because you know, you know he's, he's jabbing and God, God damn Susan, you know, I got my own YouTube channel. Why don't you come home with me? I can fist you. You know, most most art is designed to make you look at it in a certain way, and whether you're someone who's never seen art before or someone who's not a historian, the artist is playing with you. You know, so that they they want you to look at it in a certain way. So, so then I start to think about how I should look at it, and you know, they have a plan for you. It, you're, you're you're really not much in control when you're looking at art, really. So, which I find very very interesting. And I think that is a, a decent observation, right? Uh, artists, especially good artists, they, they do have a, a plan for you. And granted, there is wiggle room in this plan. You are supposed to bring uh, yourself into it to some degree. Your experiences, I mean, like like we said earlier, right? Every time you know, Dan says like, oh, I, I didn't think about this before. Right? It's supposed, that's supposed to happen with uh, with good art, right? So, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with that insight. And... Um... Then I start thinking about, you know, how scale affects me. Scale is really important to me as well. You know, big giant work like Jericho um, compared to tiny little pieces affect you in different ways. And it's how I need to stand when I look at that. Those are the other things. Um, and then I start getting up close, you know, what techniques are being used. The, the technical stuff is always the last bit for me. It's always, um, um, unless it's, you know, an artist like Cezanne, you know, where I'm really looking at brushstrokes mean a lot to me, you know, in, in that sense. So, so, you know, are the brushstrokes smooth? Are they rough? Is there a reason for this? Are they visible? Did the artist want you to see the brushstrokes or not want you to see them? Because artists know what they're doing. Um, and, and, and like, like on some level, I mean, so I, I can understand what he's saying. Like, you know, I, I'm affected differently by uh, paintings of like a large scale, but really uh, the, the, the thing, that you're supposed to see in that situation as well. If an artist has small portraits and then he has like a, a huge, huge, huge painting that takes up, you know, I don't know, like a hundred feet or whatever it might be, 
that that just speaks to uh, the diversity of talent, right? Different kinds of strengths, different kinds of abilities. This is really what you know contributes to the greatness of art or an artist. It's not what he's kind of implying that oh, maybe for some paintings I need to like stand on a chair, right? Or I need to sort of you know get a mag. That's not really you know, and it's kind of telling that he says the technicals is what's at the very end. Um, you know, it should it shouldn't like you shouldn't be one of those like technical freaks where you know you, you try to create greatness by virtue purely of technicality because that doesn't work um but still like it, it needs to be a bit more uh centered than than what he's implying here is, is there anything else in this video worth watching because i i don't i don't see this we're, we're just going to be going back and forth there are other videos that that i think bring up other points i mean i mean seek what what else is there here I mean, we know. No, I mean, yeah, we, we can move on. I mean, I, I guess I would just say, just to close, um, he, he he brings up like indifference is the worst thing you can be to a work of art, and and sure, like if you are interested in the arts and you're passionate about arts, you do want to bring that passion to the fore. But I think thinking about objectivity and resisting all these appeals to emotion, it's when you when you come to a work of art, it's not so much indifference that you want to bring. It's it's the it's that separation of willing to look that this work of art is doing something that I have to sacrifice whatever I might feel appeals to me more, what I might feel I like more in order to understand that there's something at work here that I need to figure out that's beyond what I, you know, am compelled by my whims to feel. Um, and so it's not indifference, but it's sort of a coolness that you want to be, uh, a coolness that you want to have when you're observing art so that uh, it's not overwhelmed by um by you essentially so even though you know you're part of it and, and all that so i mean that's i mean i feel like they're just gonna say more and, and this this video does come across as like oh if you're like a total novice like just don't be afraid just put yourself out there go look at art and that's really the only thing they say about um they don't they don't really get into specifics about technique which i wish i they did but i actually stopped taking notes around this Part yeah. when I was watching it, so so maybe uh, we could move on. So, do you want to do the Banksy one from this guy? Is that that's the one that you sent, right, Dan? I hate the feeling of being trapped in a paradox. For instance, the more you tell yourself to fall asleep, the harder it gets. The more you tell someone who's agitated to calm down, the more agitated they get. The more I tell you to not think of a blue dog, the more you think of a blue dog. These paradoxes can become traps when you don't know how to get out of them. It can feel extremely uncomfortable when you're stuck in one of them. It can be terrible to not be able to sleep at night, but what if one of these paradoxes prevent you from being who you are? What if they prevent you from being the artist you want to be? Kurt Cobain was a prominent victim of this paradox, and this trap has claimed yet another victim, Banksy. I'm going to read you a lengthy quote from Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism on Kurt Cobain. Well, just just right worth... here, I, I just looked up the definition of paradox. None of those three things he mentioned are paradoxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a paradox, uh, and this is from online, uh, what is it, Merriam-Webster. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So I tell you, don't think of a cow, and you think of a cow. There's really no investigation there that you need to do. Yeah. I mean, we we understand why. Like you literally said the word cow. So, I mean, so, it's going to be in so your brain. You here's know? his premise of why to get into it. 
is totally false. Not that it has any real bearing on what comes afterward, but just listening to him, I, I thought to myself, let me look up. Maybe maybe it's like definition numbers seventeen a, but no. But it, you know, it, but it's not one of those things where it's like where with YouTube, you have to you know keep it snappy, keep it moving. Uh, you know, we're fifty two seconds in. He has like a series of paradoxes that he presented. Uh, well, according to him, right? Uh, then he connects it to the arts more broadly. Then he starts getting to uh, uh, Kurt Cobain. And then before we even hit the one minute mark, he's pulling out a book Capitalism, called Capitalist yeah. Realism. You know, and, and, and um, that's the just. The reason is he's trying to show, see, I'm smart. I've talked often about. Uh, a negative capability that John Keats idea of bringing dif- disparate things together that once you bring them together, they don't seem so disparate. He's trying to do that, but o- immediately, he, immediately what he's set up is, is false. So he starts with a false premise. And so uh, his attempt to try to sound wise or, or, or whatnot falls flat on his face. And, and another thing, it's like when you're pulling out books, it's like, when I watch videos, like I want to know what you think, right? I don't care about some random book. I don't care Appeal about to somebody. Authority. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, it, it, or do you have anything interesting to say, right? Um, because that's another thing. Like, e- even if it's an appeal to an authority where the authority is actually saying something that's sensible, uh, for the most part, right? I, I'm looking for people that maybe have like novel insights themselves. So. I promise. Capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizons of the thinkable. Frederick Jameson used to report in horror about the ways that capitalism has seeped into the very unconscious. Now the fact that capitalism has colonized the dreaming life of the population is so taken for granted that it is no longer worthy of comment. Witness, for instance, the establishment of settled alternative or independent cultural zones, which endlessly repeat older gestures of rebellion and contestation as if for the first time. Alternative and independent don't designate something outside the mainstream culture, rather, they are styles, in fact, the dominant styles within the mainstream. No one embodied and struggled with this deadlock more than Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. The way that he describes uh, kind of like how, you know, resistance to a culture looks like, that's literally how it always is. I mean, that's just kind of like the process of uh, change and synthesis. Um, and like even like the the ironic thing here is just how uh, this quote is supposed to be talking about, you know, this phenomenon of like everything being essentially kind of like, I guess, uh, subsumed under, uh, you know, I guess the rubric of capitalism and perhaps some other things. Uh, and yet, you know, he's kind of like describing something that's even like pre-capitalism, right? We're, we're talking about a kind of like long term of how human beings tend to behave. And it's being, it, it, it itself is being passed off as an insight, as something new, as if for the first time, right? And, and he's not, you know, he's not able to comment on that. And this deadlock more than, I mean, the language he's using, yes, Kurt Cobain was a modern day Atlas, in his dreadful lassitude and objectless rage, Cobain seemed to give wearied voice to the despondency of the generation that had come after history, whose every move was anticipated, tracked, bought, and sold before it had even happened. Cobain knew that he was just another piece of spectacle, that nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV, knew that his every move was a cliché scripted in advance, knew that even realizing it is a cliché. Here, even success meant failure, since to succeed would only mean that you were the new meat on which the system could feed. And I don't know to what extent it's just kind of like his own words or how much of this is just like continuation of, of the quotations. But um, 
I mean, there, there's nothing obviously that prevented Kurt Cobain from doing something different if he had so desired, right? It's it's um, you know, like it's it's true that uh, you are. Uh, uh, taken by things like MTV. At the same time, like one, one thing that gets me about so many people is like, especially when people have like a pretty big audience, wouldn't you want to like start doing your own thing and sort of like lead these people wherever you want to lead them, irrespective of like anything that, you know, someone else might think? Because like, it's one thing if you have to like build up an audience, but once it's already there, you could, you could literally do whatever you want. They're going to follow you. So Cobain's angst was commodified. It became a product. So the more he expressed his angst, even if it was targeted at his own commodification, the more value he gave to that commodity. If he was pissed at MTV, that anger was going to be milked by MTV itself. There's no way he could escape it. Even Cobain's very suicide added value to his commodification. Now, let's talk about Banksy. His rage, or at least his indignation, is not objectless like Cobain's. Banksy has targeted war, authoritarianism, capitalism, the bourgeoisie, greed, and more apropos for this video, the art market. This last sentiment is best expressed in a quote by art critic Robert Hughes, shared by Banksy. But the price of a work of art is now part of its function. Its new job is to sit on the wall and get more expensive. Instead of being the common property of humankind the way a book is, art becomes the particular property of somebody who can afford it. Uh, do you guys want to talk about that? Uh, well, I was just looking at my original comment underneath and, and arguing with someone. Uh, if I can, let me let me just read my 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 first comment. I won't read anything else yet, but it's like yours here because uh, I, I wrote uh, and this was back eight months ago. I'm not a fan of capitalism, but this is a very bad taste. One, neither Coburn, Cobain nor Banksy were great artists. It's interesting that not a single qualitative comment, much less judgment, was uttered in this video. You spoke about the artist commodity and art without one speaking of the thing that is the coin of exchange in art over the eons, quality. Two, hence you, meaning uh, Bandana Boy, hence you are a commoditizer. Three, you fail to acknowledge that both of them chose to be commodities. It was not thrust on them. They were not trapped. They left inside the game to play it. Cobain's mental ills and addictions proved it was a bad mood for him, but he chose to be a rock star. He chose to marry a rock star. He chose to throw his angst and domestic abuse out into the world to commoditize it. And no one in the art world takes Banksy seriously as an artist. He is the embodiment of Warhol 2.0. He chooses to play his outrage even... Uh, though he is immensely benefited by it with little artistic quality given uh, given back to society. Even more than Cobain, he is part of the problem. A sellout who pretends he's not a sellout. He's like David Foster Wallace was to the MFA writing mafia. And now, and, and look how you present this take. And with all the other ones, you use a wholly generic YouTube perfected vocal style. And I go on about that. But but uh, yeah, this, this, this was one of the obviously bad uh, uh, takes. Uh, uh, here and th there's there's many on his uh, channel, but this this was one of the worst. Uh, wait, so so you think that Banksy is not taken seriously by the art world? Because I mean, to me, saying uh, Andy Warhol 2.0, uh, I feel like generically, if you just ask people now uh, what they think about Andy Warhol, they're like, oh yeah, that was a that was a great important artist. Uh, yeah, no one in the art world. Uh, who, who I should say, who knows anything, takes him seriously. Oh, yeah. they, take, they take him seriously uh, in terms of capital. But, you know, he's not, who, who is the, who's the guy from New York who is the, the, the well-known uh, uh, graffiti artist, the black fellow who died in the 80s. Um, oh, 
yeah, Basquiat, 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 yeah, Basquiat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we are talking about like, you know, they're taken seriously specifically because of, you know, the, the kind of like monetary value that they produce like on the wall. Uh, he's, you know, he's critiquing this, but he's not actually offering an alternative. Yeah. He's not actually like discussing Banksy. He's not actually discussing Andy Warhol. He's not actually discussing uh, the work of of Kurt Cobain. And this to me, it's like, it's one of these things where they try to uh, be respectful, like in these kinds of, I guess, like, you know, by organizing their, their thoughts about the artists in such a way. And yet, it, to me, it's like total disrespect that, uh, the work itself is just never actually analyzed. I mean, if you are an artist, like that's the number one thing that you want people to do, right? Much more than, you know, getting money, much more than anything, right? You want uh, a, a society to somehow be affected by what you're doing, right? You want to have a positive effect. And if there aren't people to discuss the work itself, I mean... Um, the art market turns a work of art into a commodity, a rare commodity which can make it a very good investment in the right circumstances. To some, that's a good thing. To others, it's a tragedy. Art, in many ways, is now appreciated not for its power, its beauty, or its challenging nature, but for its value and for its ability to generate more wealth for its owner. Think of Banksy's Central Park kiosk, where he hired a man to present spray art priced at $60. The artworks didn't get much attention. People weren't drawn to them, at least not enough to purchase them. However, had anybody known these were Banksy works, the kiosk would have been empty in a matter of seconds. However, this old man sold Banksy's artworks to people who liked them, either for themselves or to offer as gifts. If Banksy had sold them, he wouldn't have sold artworks but investments, high-value commodities. Again, to some people, that's great. An artwork can be both great as an artwork and as an investment. But to other people, Banksy included, this can hinder our ability to appreciate art. I would argue that because we are brought up in a commodified world, we cannot dissociate the value of a work of art and its price tag. So when the bourgeoisie estimates the price of a work at $2 million... And when he says that's nothing, like, like words like we, what exactly is he referring to? Um, like, he himself can't do it? Is he talking about, like, a social tendency uh when he says cannot like is that like definitively cannot or are we just talking about a, a tendency in society you know um it's, it's just like a lot of like sloppy language i guess i mean i could keep going on and on about the language but there is a ton of sloppy language in a lot of these you know art first uh, uh channels and i mean that's it's not actually too different from any other things like if you look at how like science people how they communicate um, that tends to be a, a problem. Like very recently, there was this row between uh, Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. and some, you know, like doctor, like a, you know, who's like talking about vaccination publicly, who refuses to debate. And it's like, why? You know, like, is it really because you, you know, like verbally, you know, like a scientist and even artists or even like writers themselves, very often when it comes to actual discussion, um, they don't really cultivate that ability. It's hard to not have that impair our judgment. However, that $2 million price tag is not about the work of art in itself. It's about how much this work can be worth in the future and how much you as a buyer can gain from it. And this is extremely harmful for artists, either the ones who are beginning or the ones who don't plan on having an international career. The art market promotes the idea of investing in art, of spending with the idea of reselling for a higher price. 
If you buy a painting from a local artist solely because you really like it, you might not be able to resell it for its original value. Honestly, you might not be able to resell it at all and to the art market, that's a bad investment. It comes to no surprise that the art market has little to nothing to do with art and more with wealth, speculation, and investment. I think a true collector, someone who genuinely appreciates art, can buy an artwork from someone who's completely unknown and it wouldn't matter to them because they bought the art not for the name, not for the return on investment, but for the work in itself. If you buy a work of art to later profit from it, no matter what they tell you, you're not buying a work of art. You're placing money on a nice looking investment. So I started this video by talking about how both Cobain and Banksy were stuck in the same trap. But what is this trap exactly? Banksy's greatest anti-art market stunt was without a doubt his shredding of the girl with balloon. In a nutshell, if you haven't heard about it, this work of art destroyed itself after being sold at auction. Banksy protested against the art market by destroying his work of art after it was sold. If you ask me, it's an incredible idea, but just like with Kurt Cobain, it would just add value to the commodity. When Cobain protested against MTV, he empowered MTV. When Banksy protests against the art market, he empowers the art market. This is the trap. No matter how much you protest the thing you hate, your protest won't only be unsuccessful, but detrimental to your goal. As Fisher wrote, here even success meant failure, since to succeed would only mean that you were the new meat on which the system could feed. Banksy is immensely successful, and if Banksy is the new meat on which the system can feed, Banksy is a feast. And I mean, like, talking about all this, like, it makes me wonder, uh, is the implication that non-commodified art is going to be necessarily better? Because, uh, you know, it perhaps is going to be more diverse, right? More places for art to come from, but uh, it being, you know, better or worse is not necessarily, uh, you know, very clear to me, right? It's just going to be uh, different. And, you know, stuff like, you know, Banksy uh, shredding the, the artwork as a protest, uh, the issue is that, you know, it's no longer there, right? Like it's uh, uh, like, like, like people should be much more concerned about actually producing right? Getting stuff out there, getting their poems written, getting their books written, getting their paintings done. You know, all this other stuff is just like a total sideshow, right? Nobody, uh, nobody here is like really talking about, you know, uh, the actual work ethic. Um, people are getting like so caught up on all these like outside issues. Like, is this a spectacle? Is it not a spectacle? And it's like, why don't you just actually do the thing and make it worthwhile? Like if it's additive, if this is all additive in some way, why would it matter, right? Uh, what what uh, other kind of like categories that you could attach it to, right? The bottom line is, you know, if an artwork is additive, uh, the only way that it could be additive is that uh, it, it, there's something worthwhile within it, right? So if Banksy had a, a worthwhile uh, painting in that balloon girl or whatever, uh, by virtue of it being destroyed, uh, that is, you know, like forget about like it, it being like a trolling of, uh, art buyers like if you really created a, a great work of art and you stand on as being a great work of art destroying it um is is a is is, is a is a negative quality obviously this is not only true for art social movements and even anti-capitalist ideas can be incorporated by capitalism and resold to us the art market knows that banksy is going to criticize it the billionaires buying banksy art know that banksy will criticize them and they love it the art market and billionaires don't see these attacks as dangerous. Why not? Banksy's stunt was one of the largest stunts in art history. We have one of the most successful artists in the world completely and publicly rejecting the main institution of the art world, the art market. It's a huge deal with little to no impact.
The reason why Banksy's criticism is not only ineffective but beneficial to the art market is because it's all a spectacle. Events, experiences, and art are commodified and sold to us. They become a spectacle, a show comparable to a Netflix movie. Our relation to these events can often feel detached, mostly because they are sold to us almost as fiction. The mediation between us and the world through images creates this alienating disconnection. Kurt Cobain killed himself. This, relayed through mass media, is sold to us. It's used to grab our attention. It becomes a spectacle. This degradation of the real in favor of the spectacle is what makes everything feel like a show, like it's all fake. When seeing Banksy's girl with balloon being shredded as it's being bought for several hundreds of thousands of dollars, we see it like we would see a harmless performance in a circus. It's being sold to us as such. The critique becomes a spectacle, and the spectacle, not the critique, becomes the content. No matter what Banksy does, it will be commodified. Banksy has become a spectacle, the same way Cobain did. No matter what they do, whatever they say, that will contribute to their value as commodities. Cobain knew that he was just another piece of spectacle, that nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV. Banksy is just another piece of spectacle. Nothing runs better in the art world than a protest against the art world. Everything Banksy does will become an element of the spectacle and, therefore, a commodity to be advertised and sold. The painting being shredded is part of the spectacle. Banksy's anonymous identity is part of the spectacle. Graffiti is part of the spectacle. When Banksy and only Banksy does illegal graffiti, it's acceptable, it's funny, it's part of the show. Cobain and Banksy were turned into spectacles to a point where their protests or their rage became meaningless. Their acts were just spectacles, entertainment bits that are packaged and sold to us just like any other commodity is. This commodification of these performances, these experiences, and these artists make me worry. Kurt Cobain was so well integrated to MTV culture that even when he criticized MTV, he participated in that culture. Banksy is so well integrated in the art world that even when they criticize the art world, they participate in its culture. How can an artist possibly criticize any institution which they have been so well integrated with? Doesn't that rob the artist from their power? What would Banksy have to do to really harm the art world and its market? Well, they couldn't make any artwork because that would contribute to the art world culture of criticizing the art world. What if they stopped making art? Well, that could also contribute to the mystery and myth of Banksy, the spectacle. Banksy is trapped. As long as they're an artist in the public eye, they'll participate, contribute, and empower the very thing they hate without any chance of meaningfully criticizing. And, and he, here's where he goes wrong. It's assuming that, that Banksy doesn't know this. And for, number one, Banksy is, more, is not likely one person. Per, per, I've read many things where Banksy is probably a, a group of two or three artists that, that use the moniker Banksy. So it's not a single individual. But he, he, makes, he, he makes it as if this concern, supposed concern that he has, is, is something that, that uh, motivated uh, Cobain and Banksy. And there's no evidence of that. Um, it, it, it's all it's all uh, for for the shock value and whatnot, and that that's from the very first time, twenty five thirty years ago when Banksy first became known, and Cobain a, a little bit before that. Um, so his, 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 this whole assumption that he has that's behind this video is a, again a false one. Yeah, and again, like I just keep asking myself, like who cares? Like you know, to the extent that oh, you know, this is a. Uh, uh, 
it, it all becomes uh, meaningless. Like the only reason why Banks or Kurt Cobain would be meaningless is if their music, right, or their uh, artwork is just not sufficient, right? Or if there's like not enough people that are able to like articulate why it works. Apparently, you know, he can't even do that, right? I mean, he himself said that I'm more interested in the cognition aspect of all this, which is why it's all context driven like and a lot of this honestly like uh it, it just strikes me as especially these final comments of his um they strike me as somebody is almost like justifying to himself why he would not go become an artist right because like first of all if you want to be a great artist it's very difficult and there's not much compensation there right it's not like having a youtube channel um and and uh he's kind of like trying to justify almost to himself like look how trapped they are and they are supposed to be at the top of their game and the thing is uh, my my comment that i read earlier i ended it by saying this to him uh and as I type, you have almost 30,000 views in a day, mimicking other YouTube narrators and complaining about a problem that at least for your two victims is not really a problem. And how much will you get from YouTube for this shallow and disingenuous take? Are you are you trapped or, or is it you that has YouTube in a snare? It, there's nothing that here that he's saying that is in any way any kind of an issue except as a faux issue presented to, yeah. to again, get him him clickbait yeah using words like trapped like it just makes me think like we, we like i tra trapped according to who you know right. who's trapped and why right uh, and like it sort of works at the beginning if he's talking about kurt cobain because at least there's like the specter of the suicide or whatever uh but for banksy you think banksy's trapped right he's like you know whoever he or they are you know uh, multi-millionaires get tons of like you know has like a reputation right nobody's trapped right um it, it's just it's just like a word it's like a totally made-up word that somebody is like uh, using now to um you know get get at everything other than the thing itself which is the production of work over and over and over again you know i like how he like presents like like even if you do believe that you're in some way like trapped by capitalism uh he presents this idea of a great artist just like suddenly stopping work as a solution to something like solution to what like what would that be a solution to some made a problem in his own head you know um i'm not sure if zeke uh you because no well, I'll, I'll confess this is the first time I've seen this video all the way through, but I mean, I think you're all right. I, I'm just not sure what this video adds or what it's supposed to do. Like, it seems to like lionize the idea of being self-aware about your inability to do anything in the art world and its commodification. Um, and all you can do is just sort of make these sort of ineffectual gimmicky spectacles, but wouldn't the real sort of rebellion would be to, Focus on producing great. Yeah, exactly. Art. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. That would be the actual sort of countercultural idea. But again, this guy he doesn't go into what constitutes quality art and what the art of Cobain was or what the art of Banksy is, and maybe how, in fact, the art may have contributed to sort of this uh, endless cycle of spectacle and commercialization. So, yeah, I mean. Like you said, I think Dan's original comment was like, you don't go into the art of Nirvana or or how it's successful. And I think that's probably the most important part of it because that's what they did for a living. And this sort of discussion just like oversteps that completely to talk about capitalism in this way that I think most 
educated people in the world can understand and um and and again like and, and this this whole thing is monetized so like what what is he doing is he just sort of is he not contributing to the to the same commercialization and ineffectual conversation about about art and and all that but yeah I mean, yeah, and he would say, "I'm uh, trapped too." You know, I'm like, trapped. Yeah, we're yeah. all trapped. And, 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 and that would be that would be a humble brag, right? I'm trapped. <laughs> right. I'm trapped with the, like a, over one million subscribers, right? Um, yeah, and yeah, uh, and you know, we said about the ultimate act of rebellion, the arts. Yeah, I mean, that is true. Like, think about how you know, so many like young kids would be looking for, uh, uh, you know, what would be countercultural uh, and hard work is not considered very sexy you know that's a very it's considered a very boring response to that question and yet it is in fact the ultimate response isn't it right um the the production of heart uh, of good quality work no matter the genre no matter the aesthetic preoccupations just the continued i mean like even like the my, my channel name automachination part of that at least part of that idea right this kind of process of you know just just keep going keep doing and eventually you know things take a up a, a, a life of their own all right so this is what we did here for artifact 41 does anybody have any closing comments on what we just saw the massacres that we just witnessed i guess read that there was uh so there was i sent you a link to something called empire of the mind and mm -hmm. uh like stories of old this is like an indian right. fellow who tries to be all all that I, I mentioned polyphonic fiction beast is another bad writing site cinema cartography is a husband and wife uh tail foundry tail foundry is another one was a guy i was arguing i he tried he just got real bitchy with me in the in the comments i i just bitch slapped him so yeah uh, other, uh yeah we, i mean you got you got some good points uh, the only comment i guess that that shy's fellow uh He's just always been that way, and uh, he's the only one who's not really an artist or in the arts. These other guys, but uh, it was such a terrible take on art criticism or criticism in general that, you know, God. Well, I would. He's he might not be an artist, but I do think his approach is uh, sort of emblematic of how all these people, whether they're in the arts or not, when we look at that definition of what a critic does that's never their sort of primary approach right it's always about it whether it's through appeals to emotion or it's you know artists and capitalism it doesn't it never really seems to be about the evaluation and the analysis of what the art is and what it's doing um which i think is a problem and but it's you know it's common but but yeah i mean yeah. i guess that's my take on it Right, well, this has been Artifact number 41. As always, uh, you could find this podcast not only on YouTube, but wherever you get your podcasts from, we are there. So thank you guys for watching. And I'll actually be coming back uh, soon. Uh, next week, actually, I'll be recording uh, a show with Benjamin Studebaker who is oh, wow. a political commentator. He, he's actually one of the few political commentators that I respect and actually read regularly. Um, and he, he's he's uh, younger than me. He already has a PhD. Uh, he has uh, very nice insights into various things. Um, Dan just put uh, <laughs> something over his camera. Maybe he's uh, doing oh. something that we shouldn't see. No, I, I, was, I was moving out of the way. I was looking at my... My you should have pretended that you were doing something. You should have pretended like you were doing something naughty. But <laughs> anyway, guys. All right. So thank you guys for watching. And we'll see you again soon.